0: text of emphasis today is found in the narrative of Exodus. We're looking at Exodus chapter 19 and verse 1. It reads there this, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai, After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you were to speak to the Israelites." God said, so Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak, and people all responded together, we will do everything that the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come down to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits on the mountain around them. Tell them, be careful that you don't approach the mountain or touch it, or whoever touches it will be put to death. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp, to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was uh, covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, and the smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And so Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they don't force their way up to see the Lord and that any of them would perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up on Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits up around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And so the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's pray. Oh, God, as we consider this dramatic scene, we pray for some understanding of what you have for us in this, what kind of relationship you're calling us into. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're uh, starting on a new summer journey together, a summer sermon series, a summer teaching series called Ten to Life. We're going to be investigating the the Ten Commandments. Now, for those of you who have been around uh, church circles before, this is well-trod ground. I mean, you've all, if you again, if you've been around church at all, you've all heard series on the Ten Commandments. So those of us who are going to be sharing with you are going to try to do our best uh, to, to bring some insight that may be helpful for you, to you. And one of the ways in which we want to do that is by uh, being intentional about trying to understand what each of the commandments has to say. Not about what we're supposed to do, per se, but what the commandment tells us about who God is. What do the commandments uh, tell us about who God is? God is what can we learn about God and ourselves in the famous 10 commandments now the uh, the first real ex- expanded introduction to the 10 commandments does come here in this narrative in Exodus chapter 20 and it takes place after God has just brought this group of people this group of nomads who became slaves for centuries in Egypt brought them out of that slavery, rescued them in dramatic fashion, and now has them out in the middle of the desert and intends, apparently, to build a culture, to build a community with them. And so we read in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the story, the narrative of God taking this group of people, these Israelites who are related as the narrative said back to the, the, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those, those men who believed in God. That's what, what, what their, their credit was. And so he's taking this group of people, these family members of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and building a new culture and a new community with them. Now, every religion, in fact, every, really every philosophical uh, system that is has ever existed on the planet has some kind of moral code, what you're supposed to do and what you shouldn't do in order for the community to uh, thrive. And so, as we start this journey thinking about the Ten Commandments, we have to first of all identify that fact that this is certainly not the first set of moral uh, moral code in existence, uh, at least. When it, was, uh, when it was articulated here in Exodus 20, there were moral codes that existed uh, before this. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the Ten Commandments just another set of moral guidelines, of ethical guidelines? And that's another question that we'll wrestle with uh, today. Now, I would suggest to you that, as we think about this question starting off today, that we have to consider the context. Is this just another... A set of of moral guidelines or ethical guidelines. So consider the context in the story that we just read. There are some really interesting things I think that, that uh, this narrative tells us about, and this is leading into God introducing the Ten Commandments. Um, in verse 3, it says that God and Moses are communicating, and it's almost, it's kind of funny because God is communicating through Moses. And then Moses runs down and he communicates with the people. And then the people, he runs back up and he's communicating with God. And it's kind of this somewhat almost hilarious scene of God communicating through Moses to the people. And there's this running back and forth and so on. But also just the dynamic of what's going on here. So let's think about the context. In verse 3 it says, uh, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. And so God is communicating to Moses. And what you're to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I have done. So God is telling Moses, go and tell these people what I have done for them. Remind them of what I have done for them, that I brought them out of Egypt, and then he uses very, uh, a, a, a very great a language that kind of describes it, like uh, on the wings of eagles. I have I've, I've, I've brought them out, and so he's trying to think of the most kind of dramatic imagery that he can think of, and, and it's, it's like I carry them out of slavery on wings of eagles, and then, and then in verse 10, God says, have them, have them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. ready for this exciting day, because on that day, I will come down on the mountain and I will see my people." And then in verse 15, he says, "Prepare yourselves for this, this special day, this third day. In fact, abstain from all sexual relations. This is serious now. We're not even have sex. Nobody's having sex. Serious. On the morning of that third day, there will be thunder and, and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a, a very loud uh, trumpet ba- blast, and everyone in the camp will, will tremble. So, this is, this is God communicating now to Moses that he's supposed to communicate this information to these uh, people. And then he starts the dialogue in Exodus 20, verse 2, directly with the people. And he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's establishing what he's done for them. So, as I'm reading this, and I'm thinking of coming and sharing with you, I thought of, a, of a, an experience in my, in my own life. Um, uh, Twenty-one years ago, Last February, I proposed to my wife, and I and a, I know that we've seen a lot of singles here today. Just bear with me here, uh, with this, because it, the, we're going to use a little analogy of, of proposal. But bear with me. So um, I remember the day it was a, a blustery, cold February in Michigan, and if any of you have lived in Michigan, like the All the, the Android, the, I mean, the Andrews people that we have here today. Um, Android, Andrews, bad joke. Thanks for getting that. Um, All the Andrews people here, you know what February is like in, um, in Michigan. So I had the brilliant idea to go to the beach, which is very cold in Michigan in February. You guys with me here? Now, I'm going to admit to you, there was some trembling. You know, God said he was going to come to the people and they were going to tremble. I, I, was, I was trembling on, on that day. And, um, but, but, you know, you try, to, you try to have it set up properly. You get the scene ready. Everything needs to be perfect, hard to do in February on a beach in Michigan. Anyway, I made the proposal. And the proposal was something like this. I... Would and there was trembling. you're understanding that's happening. I, I would like to be your your husband, and it's going to be you and me. And uh, and then there's that anticipation. Is now I I mean I was I was feeling pretty confident by this time because we had known things uh, uh, that we we talked about this. But I was still there's some some trepidation. But I prepared. I, I was trembling, and then I made the proposal. And guess what? She said yes. Unbelievable. I think now I would wonder what would happen if we could go back and do it all again, if she would have said yes, but thank God she said yes. Um, I can talk about her as much as I want now. She's in Louisville visiting her family for two weeks, so I am free. Who knows what's going to come out today? <laughs> so, so, she said, so she said yes. Now, so I'm reading Exodus 19 and 20, and I'm thinking about coming to you and talking about the Ten Commandments, and Man, this, this scene is so reminiscent of a proposal scene. You have God who is setting the table. He's chosen a special place. The, the people have been slaves. They come out there in the middle of the desert, but God cho- chooses a mountain, a dramatic, beautiful setting in which he's going to come to them and he's going to make this proposal. And then he tells Moses, get the people ready. Here's all the things. Make sure that they, they have bathed. I'm going to come down. I'm going to be in a fireman have my my best suit on. I'm going to come down in fire. It's going to be dramatic. There's going to be smoke. The mountain is going to be so just amazing that they can't even come up on the mountain because that's going to create problems. So he's got all this thing set up. And then he comes to the people and he makes his uh, proposal. And it's rooted in this idea, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who has done something for you that you could not do for yourselves. You were slaves in Egypt, and I have uh, rescued you on eagles' wings. And so this was designed to be this this dramatic proposal. Now, Bible students have acknowledged that this is indeed the case, that what uh, God was doing was that he was framing this whole proposal in the context of covenant relationship. Covenant relationships existed throughout this time period in Bible in, in world history. Uh, covenants where one party would make an agreement with another party about how they were going to uh, relate to each other. And so the story of Exodus 19 to 20, the introduction of the Ten Commandments, follows this pattern exactly. You have one party coming to the other party and making this proposal. This is how our relationship should uh, work. And so you have God wanting to make and come into a covenant with these people, these Israelites, who he now also has plans to establish them as a culture that's going to affect the whole earth. And he, he starts off by saying, uh, hey, as we come into a covenant relationship with each other, there are some ex- expectations that go along with that. that. That one of those expectations is that you won't have other husbands. That I will be your only husband. That's fair enough, right? I mean, when I was on that blustery beach with, uh, with Sarah... My Sarah, Rob, Rob and I have this thing because he's also married to Sarah where when you say Sarah and I say your Sarah or my Sarah and then we clarify that it's, you guys okay? We all right here? Am I doing okay? Okay. Okay, so anyway, so my Sarah, when I was with my Sarah, when I asked her if she would be my wife and I could be her husband, the expectation was that there would only be one husband. Are you with me? It wasn't like, I want to be you know, one of your husbands. It was, I want to be your husband. And so that's an expectation. So it would make sense that God is the same way. Hey, have no other gods before me. I want to be your God. And that's how, how it's going to operate. These are the expectations. Um, there, would, there was also the expectation, uh, 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 don't have sex with other people. That's an expectation that most people anticipate when they ask for someone to marry them. You guys with me here? God is the same way. Don't worship other things. Don't have idols. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, We're going to share each other's name. We're going to share each other's name. And there's something important uh, about that. And so let's not dishonor each other's name. And then, hey, if we're going to be in this relationship, we should dedicate special time for each other, intentional time with each other. So... God makes the proposal. I'm your God. I want to be your, your God. I'm calling you in the covenant relationship with me, but there are some expectations that go along with being in that a relationship. And so this is the journey that we're going to be on throughout the summer for the next 10 weeks, exploring these expectations that God, that God introduces as he proposes to this group of people who were the Israelites at the the time, but as he proposes to each of us, calling us into relationship with him. So we're going to explore this. Now, today, shifting gears, we want to look briefly at this uh, first commandment. And back to that principle, that theme, what do the commandments, what do these expectations tell us, not just about what you're supposed to do, but what do they tell us about who God is? And so, we consider the first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Very simple. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, sometimes when we read this, I think we interpret this as God saying, hey, I should be the first in your life. But that's not what you shall have no other gods before me means. God is not saying you sh- I should be the first God in your life. He's saying, hey, there should be no other gods, linguists have looked at this and said this is exactly what God, there should be no other gods in my presence. No other gods in my presence. It's not I'm the first god and you have other gods. There's only one god and I'm that god. There's no other gods in your experience in my presence. You should have no other gods before me. Again, very similar to you know, whoever, for those of you who are, are married or are engaged, whoever made the proposal, when that proposal was made, it's not I want to be the first. I want to be your first wife. I want to be your first husband. It's, I want to be your only husband. I want to be your only wife. And so this is the imagery that we get of God. I want to be the only one. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I would suggest to you that there are three insights we can learn about God from this first commandment. The first is this. God believes there are other gods. God believes there are other gods. It's it's indicated right in the passage. You shall have no other gods before that me. Why would God say that if he didn't believe that there are other gods? You shall have no other gods before me. God believes in other gods. And so that leads to a question. What is a, what is a God? What is a God? Um, our friend uh, Timothy Keller pastors here in New York has written a lot about this, some really profound things in his, his magnum opus, uh, Counterfeit Gods, well worth checking out if you want to explore this topic in more uh, detail, exploring the, the, the counterfeit gods and wrestling with this question, what is a God? Well, I would put forth to you that a God is a thing that you put faith in, that you believe in, that you believe that your security re- resides in, that your pleasure resides in and that your hope and future resides in. So if we think back to ancient times if we think about back to the mythological gods many of the gods were related to things that people could tangibly see in creation. So you had the sun and the sun was something you could believe in. I mean if there's anything that we can believe in as humans it's the sun because every single day it comes up and every single day at Generally, the same time, within a couple hours, it goes down, and then it comes back the next day, and then it comes and goes, comes and goes. It's incredibly reliable, the sun is, right? You guys with me here? It's summer. It's, it's sleepy time, I know, A god is something that you put your faith into. And so historically, historically uh, it was things that you could reliably see, whether it was the sun or things of nature or the wind or war. Or, and so you had gods for all of these things. And you put your faith in these gods or you believed in these gods that they were capable of doing things that were beyond your, your capability and, and power. And so whether it's the sun, the moon, whatever, whatever. Now, uh, author Neil Gaiman wrote a novel in 2001 called American Gods. It's since been developed into a, a prestige TV series. And uh, Gaiman personifies the ancient gods as humans living in America. And the, 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 the main figure, the main character is the god Odin, whose name in the novel is Wednesday. Uh, by the way, did you know that the word Wednesday is actually rooted in the god Odin? Uh, I, I can't say the German. Sean, you could. how do you say uh, Odin Odin as Wednesday in German? Oh, okay, it's so Otan, and then there, there, there's a, a, a more explicit word for the actual day, but it may be so old German that, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> thank you, Sean, for trying trying to help me out. Anyway. His name is Wednesday. It's related to the god Odin. And so Gaiman personifies these mythological gods of old. And the implication is that when immigrants came to the United States, they brought their gods with them. Okay, So when the Vikings came, they brought Odin. When the Greeks came, they brought their gods. When, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so America is full of these gods. But they're losing influence and power in contemporary stuff. Who are they losing their influence and power to? Well, according to Gaiman, the new gods. The new gods, they're losing their influence and power to the new gods. And the new gods are technical boy. They're losing their, their power to media, the goddess of TV. And they're losing their their influence and power to Mr. World, who is the god of globalization. And so the, the whole uh, novel is set on this, this battle between the new gods of technology and media and globalization and the old gods of myth- mythology led by uh, Odin. Now, I would suggest that Gaiman is identifying something really important, that it, and that is that we in contemporary culture have come to value certain important tools to such a level and put our faith in them so highly that they have become gods to us. Our, our technology, our media, our globalization, our economy, personally, our own uh, ability to, to, to work, our careers, that these things are the things that we actually put our, our faith in. And this is identified by the amount of, partially by the amount of time we invest in them. We invest a lot of time in our media. We invest, invest a lot of time in our uh, political system. We invest a lot of a, a time and energy in our in our careers, and so this is just identifying how important they are to us. And Gaiman, and apparently God in Exodus chapter twenty would identify this as being an other god. And so the first insight that we get about God is that God, the Creator God of the Bible, believes in the other gods, believes that other gods exist. Um, now it's important to note, you know. First of all, there's nothing wrong with the, the Sun, right? Just because people came to worship the Sun and identify the Sun with God doesn't mean that there's anything innately wrong with the the Sun. Uh, their only problems exist when you start worshiping the sun and putting your faith in the sun, because as, as the Bible indicates, the sun was created by the one tr- true God, and if you're worshiping the sun, you're missing the point that there's a, a, a bigger God. And so just like that, hey, there are things in our contemporary society, technological advances, globalization, where, which are not innately a problematic themselves. They only become problems when we make them, according to Keller, ultimate things. You guys with me here? All right. So God believes in other gods. There are other gods that are competing for our faith, for our uh, belief. Uh, secondly, this, this uh, we get again from verse 2 of Exodus 20. Uh, god's proposal is rooted in his work on our behalf. So God's desire to be in relationship with us with humanity with the Israelites in Exodus 20 and with us today is not rooted in your behavior. In fact, God's desire to be in relationship with us is rela- is related to his action. He says, "I am the Lord your God." Not because you're awesome people, but because I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I took care of you when you were hurting and in need. Now, most of us have not been Certainly, none of us have been slaves in Egypt, so in one sense this doesn't relate to us. But the implication is is clear, that if God has worked in your experience, this is part of God's appeal to you, that he cares about you and is calling you into relationship with you. I am the one who brought you out of financial ruin. I am the one who provided for you when you didn't think you had anything left and your bank account was empty. I am the one who brought you out of that broken relationship that you didn't think you would ever get over, but now you're over. That is me. I am the God who brought you out of relationship. And so God is rooting his relationship with us, not in our action, but in his action. I'm the one who did this. And so the whole reason I'm proposing to you is not because something that You've done that's awesome, but because I want to do awesome things for us together. God believes there are other gods. God's proposal to humanity is rooted in his work, not ours. And then finally, an old classic we learn from commandment number one that God is jealous. God is jealous. Now, the concept of jealousy can make us uncomfortable because it does have a lot of negative. Attributes certainly in human relationship it can be a very negative thing, but the reality is that jealousy makes a whole lot of sense, and in a holistic relationship can be healthy. I mean, you want to be je- You want to care. You want to care enough that you you want to have a special kind of relationship with another person. So, you know, if you ask me, am I uh, jealous for my wife? If I were to say, ah, no, you would be like, uh, thank God, she is in Louisville. Uh, because that's not a great way to see. Now, does that mean that if I were to see my wife talking to another person and be sketched out about that, that 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 would be problematic, all right? That's not just jealousy, that's paranoia. So God is not paranoid, but God is jealous. He wants the special relationship to be between him and his people, and as he's indicating with this, this whole idea of no other gods, there can't be other husbands. There can't be other wives, this is this kind of relationship only works when we and him are the, the ones together in on, on this. God is a jealous God. We read this, actually, in Exodus 20, uh, verse 4, but I won't read it there. I'll read it in Exodus 34. Break down those altars. Smash their sacred stones and cut down their Asherah poles. These are symbols of other gods. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. His name is uh, jealous. That God cares about whether we are in committed, uh, monogamous relationships with him. God is calling us into a, a monogamous relationship, not a, a polygamous relationship with, with him. This is the only way that this thing is really going to work Healthfully, and again, it makes sense. If I were to have two or three wives, it's going to affect my relationship with my own wife. If she were to have two or three husbands, I can't even imagine what that would be like. It would not go well. So, again, this makes sense. So, this leaves us with with a last question. So, we've said, hey, there are some insights about God that we get from the first commandment. God believes there are other gods. Uh, god 's proposal to us is based on his work, not ours, and God is jealous to be in relationship with with us that is only He and us it's not polygamous um, so the question that we are left with is okay, all right this sounds good you know this sounds like a healthy uh, relationship, especially in the context of of God and, and humanity. so how then do we respond? how do we keep this uh, commandment that 's the The classic question, well, how do we keep the commandment? How do we abide? How do we enter into this uh, relationship? And so I think when, oftentimes when we ask ourselves that question, how do we keep this commandment, we uh, start doing something like, first of all, identifying, which is probably a good idea, identifying all those other things in our lives that could be God's. Okay, So we think to ourselves, okay, so you hear... You know, you, 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 you read something or you hear someone talk and say, you know, you should keep the commandments. And you go home to yourself and, and think, boy, that first commandment, haven't thought about it very much because it seems so obvious. But, okay, what are the other things that are God's in my experience are potentially there? And so we say, you know, I do spend a lot of time and money on, you know, this or that or whatever. And then we try to, uh, to, to manage those things. Okay, we, should, we should spend less time or less money on those things, and then with the hopes that that's going to make everything uh, great. And if we just manage ourselves better, or, or we go to the extreme and say, well, I'm just going to get rid of that altogether. I'm just going to get rid of that altogether. I'm not going to participate in any media anymore. I'm never, I'm never going to turn on the TV ever, ever again, or I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to move to the woods so that I'm not worried about career you know, aspect and, and where that's going, and that's not going to be a god for me. And so, so we try to either manage or we just try to do away with those things. All right, now, I mean, back to the relationship thing. And again, love our singles here. So I'm sorry to be so 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 a married person centric here, but this is an analogy the Bible work with, and it, and it 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 works. Imagine, imagine that again, Sarah or I, that we were like, okay, okay, we don't want anything hindering uh, our relationship with each other, so what are we going to do? Okay, we're going to manage our relationships with other people, and, and in some cases, we're just going to not talk to anybody ever again, just going to, like, don't talk to me, don't talk to me, I'm, 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 I'm married to only one wife. You would say, what is wrong with that crazy person? Why is he doing that? It, it doesn't make any, it, any sense, and the reality is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You, you going home and saying to yourself, all right, I'm going to get it together now. I'm going to obey these commandments, and in particular this first commandment, I'm going to just obey it better, and so I'm going to identify the other things in my life that could be God, and I'm going to just manage them better, or I'm just going to get rid of them altogether. It doesn't work, because first of all, some of those things that become gods are things you actually need. For example, you need other people in your experience, and if you're concerned that other people are going to become a god to you, and so you're just going to get rid of them, or you're going to get rid of technology, or you're going to get, you're going to find some of those things you actually need. You guys with me here? So getting rid of them or, or, or is is one thing, but that doesn't work. And managing, we are terrible at managing the things we need and don't need. Now some of you are better than others. You know, you've gone to Barnes and Noble, and you've got, you went to the self-help Section and you got books and you said I need to manage my life better in this particular area and you have dedicated yourself To getting your act together in one area in which you weren't managing properly you guys with me here But you know what? Uh, sociologists have found This really works. We have I've said this a hundred times before so just bear with me. We have more books about how you should get your life together than at any other time in the history of humanity, and we are all just as messed up as we have ever been. If it was because we were lacking information, and now we have all this information, we should all be living such balanced and healthy and perfect lives, and yet we are all a mess. Are you a mess? (laughs) I'm a mess! You're a mess. I've talked to you enough enough of you to know you're all a mess. <laughs> We're all a mess. I mean, I, this is why I love coming together in a community like this. Because we can say we are a mess. We are a mess. And look, we try to get our lives together. We try to manage those things that might be you know, endangering or our, 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 our becoming a god for us. But the reality is that we are terrible at it. And so, if we are just going to rely on our own ability to get ourselves together, to manage our lives, to to manage those things that could interfere with our relationship with the one true God, or to get rid of them altogether, we're just going to be endlessly frustrated. And my experience is that that is where many of us are. We are just endlessly frustrated about our own lack of development, physical development, spiritual development. Mental development, why can't I just get it together and we don't get it together? So if we're left on our own, we are in a terrible mess. And so that leaves us with the real final question, and that is, where, what is our hope? What is our hope? If it, you know, here God comes and he says, I want to be in relationship with you, and then he gives these expectations and we say, excited about this? this sounds like a great relationship. By the way, this is exactly what the people did. We read it in Exodus 19. It comes up again later. The people heard it, and they were like, all of these things we will do. All of these things we will do. We like the sight of this relationship. This God sounds like a great God. He did bring us up out of Egypt. We're going to do all of these things. And then you know the rest of the story if you read it, that before Moses came back down from the mountain, they were having a party with an idol. Because they made the commitment, a commitment that they themselves could not and did not keep very long. And we do this all the time. We make a commitment. I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to manage my life better. I'm going to get rid of those things that are interfering with my relationship with God. And then before we know it, we are dancing around a golden calf. And we're like, what the heck just happened to me? Uh, I should have said hell, but I didn't because I pulled back. But that is really the issue. What? What the hell just happened to me? Maybe hell did happen to you. You know what I'm saying? Um, so what do we do? What, what hope do we have? Well, I would suggest to you that this is where Jesus comes into the picture. Now, you knew I was, you, know, you knew where this was going, so this was no surprise. But this, this is where Jesus comes in the picture, right? So you have the God who comes on the mountain and fire and dramatic, and the people couldn't even touch the mountain. You remember that? and i love how god is like a little note go back and tell them don't even touch the mountain and moses is like what are you talking about we set up a, a perimeter a wall around the mountain we did trump style around the mountain and we made a big old wall there's nobody's going to get around the mountain and god is like no no to no, just go and tell them because I mean, there's somebody crazy person is going to try to get around that that perimeter and get to the mountain just tell him so you have this imagery of god and he's in fire and smoke and and this is the and people are supposed to be in relationship with him but uh, you know what, it was, a, it was a challenge. So then Jesus comes, and now Jesus is the same God. He's the same God who came on, in fire on the mountain, all right? I'm not making this up. This is the story of the Bible. It's the same God. But this time, no longer is he on a mountain that you can't even go up and touch anymore. No longer is he a burning flame of fire. No longer is he enshrouded in smoke and that when he talks, people can't even hear him. That's what they said, by the way. Moses had to be the interpreter because God talked and the people said, don't have God talk to us anymore because he is so terrifying. Jesus comes and he's just like us. He's a poor guy. He's wears the same clothes every single day. He's one thing, one pair of nice clothes, and he wears them all the time. And he's his his single mom and his, his and his, his stepdad died, and he's just a normal guy. And then he comes and he lives and he teaches and he and he loves and he's murdered. He's murdered for no for no reason. Other than. Bible students tell, tell us that the, the, the most likely reason that Jesus was murdered was for his interpretation of the Ten Commandments. They didn't like how he interpreted the Ten Commandments, specifically the Fourth Commandment, which we will talk about in a few weeks. His, his, his challenge of their interpretation of the Fourth Commandment did not sit well with the religious establishment of the day, and that was partially responsible for his death. And so you have God, the same God who came on the mountain, now coming as a, as a human, a poor guy with a s- single mom and who's kind of nomadic and gets a small follower of Jesus's, a uh, of, of small follower of disciples, and dies really before anything much gets started. I mean, he's only got a small uh, crew of people. But the story of the narrative of the Bible is that in this action, in Jesus. In God coming not as a mountain with fire and flames and smoke, and you can't even understand what, he, what he's saying. As a human, as a man, and dying and then being resurrected, and that in that we have hope because now we have the answer to all of our needs. We have a God who is not far off and not removed and not one that we can't have a relationship with, one but one who wants to be our brother. And who is willing to do anything on our behalf. And has acted in, in a way beyond our comprehension or imagination. Who has, has, has kept the law himself. And, and who, as we embrace his work, we are empowered to be able to keep the law ourselves. To, 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 to abide by those, those actions, those expectations. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, we have hope That we can live in a a, a relationship tied together with this this God who has proposed to us. Romans chapter uh, 10. Paul, who was one of the the great communicators about this good news, he writes this. This is Romans chapter 10 and verse 5. I'm going to land the plane right here. This is Paul writing. He says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. Now, he's referencing Moses, who, who, who was, was involved back there in Exodus and who not only was involved in the Ten Commandment giving, but all of the instructions that God gave after the Ten Commandments. So Paul is referencing it. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law, and he quotes, The person who does these things will live by them. So he's articulating one way of interpreting how the law works. You know, you hear what you're supposed to do, and then you just get your act together, and you just do them. And he's referencing, and all the people would think back, and they would remember that the Israelites of old, they heard God, and they said, all these things that we will do, and then they weren't very good at doing. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. They'll just get their act together, and they'll just do it. But the righteousness that is by faith, this new construct... The righteousness that is by faith uh, says, quote, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven? Who will get it all together and work their way to, to heaven? That is to bring Christ down or who will descend in the deep? Who will go as far as they have to go to be as spiritual as they can be and get it all together on their own? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does this righteousness by faith say? he's quoting now, the word is near to you. God is near to you. In fact, he's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message, the message concerning faith that we, the disciples, proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I I'm a big fan of this verse because I think this verse articulates almost more clearly than any other place in the Bible what God is calling us into. And if we want to think about what God is calling us to do, you have a very clear articulation here. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no, you know, but you got to do all this other stuff you got to do all this. No. You declare with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's good news. This is for everybody. This applies to everybody. Doesn't matter your social standing, doesn't matter your ethnicity or your culture or where you were born. Everybody has the same opportunity. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How do we respond? God is proposing to his Israelite people, but not just to them, to each of us. He makes a, a proposal. I want to be in relationship with you. So what is our response? How do, how do, we, how do, we, how do we keep those expectations that, we, that he has? Do we just try harder? Okay, I've got some things that are feeling like they might be infringing on my God relationship. I'm just going to get rid of them, so I'm going to try really hard. Is that, is that how it works? And we just try harder and, and everything, we're, it doesn't work that way. We're not, we, we're not, we don't have the capacity to do that, first of all. Paul says, you confess with your mouth and then believe with your heart. And then God starts to do in you what you cannot do for yourselves. And when you confess and when you believe, when you accept that proposal, When you accept the proposal, God is enabled to do in you what you cannot do for yourself. And this is the most profound thing in human history. Now, Jesus came and he said, because he came at a time when people were all obsessed with getting it all together on their own, and they had a whole set of laws and rules about how you you can be a moral person. And they took the Ten Commandments and they made that into hundreds of commandments. And you just got to do this on your own, and you got to work together, and we're going to make this happen, and you're going to become a, a, a good person. And so when Jesus came, he said that the message that he brings is actually a tripping stone. It's something you fall over. You trip. You know, you, you're on the sidewalk, and the sidewalk is a little not level, and you trip over that. You've ever had that experience happen? then you try to look cool because you're in New York, and you're dressed well, and you just about wipe down the street. Jesus says that this message is like this. It's so easy to trip over because we are so accustomed to you having to get it together. We're so accustomed to you going out and getting a self-help book and figuring out how to get your life together. We're so accustomed by somebody going and saying, you need to keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. But you're not going to keep the commandments. You're messed up. You are a screwed up mess. The only way in which the commandments can truly be kept, is as we accept God's proposal and allow him to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, and then we can be commandment-keeping. But it becomes out of his work, not ours. Ours is never going to get it done. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus called a stripping stone because it's so easy that it's hard to believe. It's so easy that it's hard to believe. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so our work is to each and every day em- embrace the proposal. I mean, for those of you who are married, and you, we, we look, we don't formally do this, but there's some acknowledgement. You wake up in the morning, and you know, there could be a tough day ahead. But just something in your mind is that I'm, I'm committed to this person, and I am going to reaccept that proposal every day. And when you re-accept that proposal, the day may not go great, but you're committed to each other. And in the end, it, you're, you're gonna, that when you fall asleep at night, you're going to still be there with each other. Now, with God, it's a whole different thing because God has power and capability that we don't have for ourselves. But this idea of confessing our relationship is crucial. Declare with your mouth. And first thing in the, in the morning, listen, I was talking this morning, I was telling Telling our, our, our 9, nine a.m. in class, one of the most profound things that happened to me is in, in right here. We, have, we had this group that was meeting on Sabbath afternoon called Faith Lab, and we were exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And one of the things we decided is God is really into just us confessing that we believe in Him. <laughs> we're all trying to figure out all these things that we should do to get it together, and God keeps coming back, and Jesus, time and again again, it's like, believe. And so, you know what we started doing? Just confessing together. I believe in the power of the resurrection, and I want God's Spirit to work in me. And I can say, of all the spiritual things that I've done in the probably last 10, 10 years, that has probably been the most helpful thing From So, when I get up in the morning, I believe today. I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe today in the power of the resurrection. I believe that what God has done for me, something I cannot do for myself, and and I want that to be happen in my experience. I want God to work in my... Now, I don't have it all together. I'm not up here to tell you that. But I'm telling you, there is something powerful about confessing uh, belief. The word is near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is not a saved off sometime in the distant future when Jesus comes back again, which I hope is soon, but who knows when it's going to be. This is talking about being saved right now, which means God starts to work in our experience right now to make us into new creations. And that means that we start living up to the expectation of the Ten Commandments, but not, not on our own. It's not you go out and you start having no other gods. And you start observing the Sabbath and you stop being angry with people and murdering people. It doesn't work that way. I believe Jesus is Lord and then God is empowered that I can live in a holistic relationship with him like never before. This is what God is calling us in today and he's asking for us to confess that we believe that he is able to do what he's promised. Let's pray. God, there's so many ideas about how we can become the people that we want to be and that you want us to be. I pray that you can speak to our hearts and you can help us to see the clear path to a holistic relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.